Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. We're finishing up our mini-series on our global outlook for 2021, and today we're talking about sustainability. In January, we outlined a series of steps we're taking to prepare investors for the transition to a net-zero greenhouse gas emissions world. And we've spoken for a couple years now on how climate change is reshaping the global economy and why we believe it's becoming an investment risk. But most projections for the economy and investment returns still don't take climate change into account. We believe they should, and that investors need to incorporate sustainability into how they build portfolios. So today, we're talking to Vivek Paul, Senior Investment Strategist for the BlackRock Investment Institute, on how to navigate the investment risk created by climate change and sustainability more broadly. Vivek, thanks so much for joining today. Thanks, MC. Great to be here. So in the past year, sustainability has come into focus so much more. In part because of the COVID pandemic, there's been an increased focus on resilience and social considerations that are part of sustainable investing. Because of the extreme weather events and temperature of last year, there's been increased focus on environmental and climate. So what are you most focused on as you think about sustainable investing in 2021? Well, I think just to echo what you said at the start, the last 12 months has been incredible. I mean, we think about governments across the world and institutions across the world and the level of change we've seen. For instance, of course, in the US, Joe Biden rejoining the Paris Accord agreements. You can see in the UK, the government prioritizing their green agenda. And in the EU, the EU Recovery Fund having explicit climate-related targets with how that money is invested. The European Recovery Fund is what the EU has decided to collectively pull its money and invest into the future of Europe to allow it to recover from the worst effects of the coronavirus pandemic. I think clearly this has been a step change in 2020. More and more corporations are signing up to initiatives to limit the amount of carbon emissions they have and so on. And I think the real question now is how does this momentum kind of continue and what does that mean for the pricing of asset returns? We do think that this is really one of the key drivers when we're thinking about formulating investment decisions now. We've talked about climate risk as an investment risk for some time, particularly at BlackRock and our CEO, Larry Fink, has written an annual letter. And this year it's focused on this. What do you think that really means? Can you just kind of refresh what is climate risk as an investment risk and how does that affect asset prices? Absolutely. So climate risk is investment risk. It's the idea that the landscape of what you can and cannot buy is changing. There are risks associated with that that act at a granular level. But one thing that I think is really important to recognize is it's not just investment risk, it's investment opportunity. As we transition to a different looking economy in the future, what that means is that there will be winners and losers across regions, across companies, across sectors. And really positioning well ahead of this transition, I think, is crucial for investors to make the right decisions. So climate risk influences the stability of companies, the fundamentals of companies. It influences the macroeconomic outlook. It changes, I think, the expectations one might have around GDP in different regions across different times. It also, importantly, changes how much we're willing to pay for stuff. And I think you need to consider all of those when you're making investment decisions. So that requires harnessing a lot of different data, historical data, but also forward-looking data, because part of the challenge here is that we don't really know how the climate's going to change. We don't really know what the policy remedies are going to be to drive decarbonization and work toward a net zero future. 
And so, of course, all investing is about trying to anticipate the future and the impact that might have on markets or a particular investment decision. But in this case, we have that many more unknowns in a way. And it also requires bringing together climate science, climate policy, understanding of different sectors. In short, it's a really hard challenge that requires a breadth of expertise and a depth of data. And so how do you sort of start to think about where to begin, like which asset classes, which geographies might be most affected, and how we think about that incorporating the right data or the right sort of adjustments to think about climate risk? Okay, well, look, there's a lot there. And the first thing to just acknowledge is, you're right, this is hard. There's a reason why it's not standard industry practice today to effectively take into account these multitude of issues and you're kind of making that most important decision that one makes in investment, which is what's the right blend of types of exposure, how much broad equity, how much credit, how much government bonds, how much private markets. To answer that, you need to effectively try and come up with a vision for the future. And these effects that we're talking about affect every single aspect. Now, a couple of things we can do. Firstly, is let's explicitly acknowledge that it is tough. And that sounds trivial, but actually that is a crucial part of how we build portfolios at BlackRock over a long run horizon. We explicitly take into account this idea of fundamental uncertainty of returns. And at first glance, that sounds obvious. Of course, returns are uncertain. But actually, if you acknowledge the fact that you might have different convictions on different things, you can build that information into a portfolio construction process. And I think that's part of the way you get comfortable with the output. But then how does this then manifest? How does this influence the entirety of the investment landscape? And I think the important place to start here is this idea that society and societal preferences are shifting. That is the driver. That is the thing that is changing the world. And that changes who we elect as our elected officials and what policies they pursue. It changes what you and I are willing to buy, how we spend our money. This is the thing that is changing asset pricing and changing asset markets. What we're trying to do now is say, well, okay, great having that high level statement, but what does it mean in terms of explicit views one might have about the future? And we're trying to tackle this in three different directions. The first is crucial, the macroeconomic outlook. This is the idea of different levels of growth in different regions, different levels of inflation, the level of interest rates being different across regions. And it's worth just pausing on this because there's a really, really important point here, which I think drives the whole reason why we're doing this, right? And it's the fact that climate change is an investment opportunity. And putting it another way, the way people have talked about this in the past has been to frame the macro picture in terms of losses, in terms of negatives. People say, well, if we make this transition towards a more green environment, then what that means is we have to take a hit on growth of the following magnitude. But what's misleading about that is that people are comparing against a fictitious benchmark. They're comparing against a world in which climate change doesn't exist. We know that's not true. The real benchmark to compare against is one in which climate change occurs and no one does anything about it. And that is a very, very nasty set of occurrences. That is not a place where you're going to get fantastic returns across the board because there is material impacts on different regions and different economies and so on. And because we think people are doing stuff about it, this is why climate change is about an increase in growth. And once you change your framing, you see really this is why investment opportunity might occur. And I've got a trivial example here. You know, imagine you're a skydiver. You've jumped out of the plane. You're hurtling down towards the ground. And halfway through, you say, I don't want to pull the parachute because I'd rather sprout wings and fly away. Right? <laughs> of course, that probably would be great, but it's not going to happen. 
And it's the same thing when you're comparing climate policy changes relative to doing nothing. The alternative, not pulling your parachute in this case, is far, far, far worse. Pulling your parachute is a better thing. Climate change policies are a better thing than not. And that's a key kind of thing to understand here. The second and third elements are this idea of repricing and this idea of corporate fundamentals. So when we're trying to think what might occur in the future, we're directly trying to take into account the fact that we're all willing to pay different amounts for different things. Now, to the point I think you led on in your question, there is no data really that we can kind of reliably look at over the past 10, 20, 30 years because this has never happened before. This is not in the price. But there are important things that we can learn from history because there have been other things in the past which are long-run societal effects, changing demographics in different regions that actually influence asset prices. And what we can do is we can learn from those sorts of experiences here. We're kind of saying that actually the change in relative carbon emissions intensity actually is a key driver. We're already seeing some evidence of that, but we think we'll see much more of that in the future. Can you explain what that is, relative carbon emissions intensity? Yeah, of course. So what I mean here is the emissions a company might pump out into the atmosphere for carbon. So we're talking explicitly about scope one and scope two. So this is effectively the stuff that they directly control and also the stuff that is a function of them consuming electricity, if you like. And different firms will have different amounts of carbon emissions out there. But we also need to scale for the fact that different firms are different sizes. You know, my local post office will have less emissions than a colossal multinational, but it's probably not fair to compare them. We need to compare relative to firm size. And our belief here is that as society kind of evolves, what we're expecting is that people will reward those which are more efficient with regards to carbon emissions than the less efficient, i.e. I'm willing to effectively want to purchase something from a firm who is pumping out less carbon for a given level of size of the firm than I would for some who is not as good. So can you give an example where you think this is creating an opportunity? You're right. So much of the discussion around the impact of climate change on the economy is negative. There's a couple obvious examples. In some places in the world, higher temperatures will mean higher crop yields, and that could be positive, or it could mean that real estate becomes more attractive. But what else do you think this creates in terms of opportunity? Yeah, well, I think this is a good one. So actually, in answering this question, I think it's worth saying that you can't really make these sorts of judgments at a broad regional level. You have to go more granularly. You have to go sectoral or even actually the underlying firm level. But what we're doing in terms of our long run views of the world is trying to assess this from the lens of sectors. And you can imagine here that different sectors will have different opportunities and different challenges as we transition. And in the work that we've done, we find that there are some sectors which are likely to benefit from this transition more than others. An obvious example of a sector in general which might find this transition challenging is the energy sector. That is one where we think all else equal because of what's about to occur. This is not going to be a boom time in general for all firms within a sector that might always be winners and losers. So you can see, for instance, at a sectoral level, healthcare technology could be beneficiaries at the expense of sectors such as energy. Corporate fundamentals are working in a positive direction. That means to say that there are opportunities out there which they can tap into, clean technology revenue streams, for instance. But also in that repricing angle I was talking about, the fact that actually these kind of sectors, these industries are likely to emit less carbon per size of firm, we will be willing all else equal, I think, to prefer those sorts of exposures at a very high level macro. And then from those sort of sectoral insights, we can then start to learn something regionally. There'll be the macro effects that occur regionally and it's the intersection of all those effects. By putting all those in conjunction, we get the full picture. 
So a critical question is, what does it mean for the sectors that are going to be suffering the most, to put it kind of bluntly? Do you think that we'll see massive business model change, for example, in energy or from other companies who are going to be adversely affected? I think you've seen it already in some ways in the sense that it's not just the business models that will change. It's also the composition of different indices. The types of companies within the high yield index, for instance, has shifted dramatically already in the course of the last 10 years. The amount of names that are coal producers has just fallen dramatically because the world is kind of shifting. You're going to see more of those sorts of effects transpire over the course of the next five years, 10 years and beyond. Another thing to say is that this is why this is such an investment opportunity, because the size, the magnitude of these differences is really meaningful. So when we think about the future, when we think about investing over a long run horizon, for us, in terms of the way in which we think about it, if I were to compare some of those sectors that I mentioned earlier, who we think will be the most favorable as a result of this, and some of those who are the least favorable, the gap in terms of the potential performance there, that is equivalent to some of the largest expectations we might have of returns of any asset classes. So in the context of a low return environment, that gap is massive. And that's why it's such a big investment opportunity. But to your direct question, yes, business models are going to shift. And that's really why understanding corporate fundamentals is crucial to understanding, frankly, which are they going to be the winners, which are going to be the losers. Some won't make it. And indices, we think, will shift in composition as we go forward. So we've talked mostly about E or climate risk specifically, not even all of E. And that's typical when we're talking about sustainable investing because there are a number of more data sets. There's a little bit more research around the relationship between some of the stuff we've been talking about and risk and return. But what are your thoughts around social factors and governance factors? What kind of research questions are you most excited about as you think about those in 2021? I think the first thing to say is that while we have majored in terms of this work on carbon emissions and E in particular, when we're thinking about how the broad market moves, that is not by any stretch of the imagination to say that S&G don't matter. They do matter. They're crucial for investment decision making today. The point here is that we think carbon emissions intensity in the way in which I just talked about, everyone has a general idea of what is good and what is bad. As a result, that we think shifts market pricing. That shifts, if you like, the return of indices. That shifts the return in aggregate of different asset classes. Now, with S&G, it's a little bit more complicated because not everyone universally agrees exactly what matters and what doesn't matter. There is research that's out there which shows, for instance, that more cohesive workforces, more diverse workforces, for instance, add value, that you get an increase in corporate fundamentals, you get an increase in efficiency of the firm as a result of some very important metrics which fall under the S umbrella. But I guess the difficulty is to try and get systematic data across different firms, across different regions in order to draw conclusions that you think are going to drive the entirety of the market. In different regions, different metrics are more prevalent than others. It's not necessarily consistent and it doesn't mean the same thing in different regions. And so where we view S in particular is a source of alpha or a source of an ability to outperform the market, but not necessarily something that drives market returns. What I'm saying here is if I believe I had fantastic insight into S drivers, I think I might be able to outperform parent indices. I can add alpha there, but I need everyone in the world to agree with me that that is important for the market itself to shift. So that's why we think carbon emissions intensity drives the market and S more drives alpha. So you mentioned that for the market to actually evolve or change, there needs to be a little more consensus around what's good or bad, what drives return, what doesn't. 
to what extent have some of these sustainability risks or factors been priced into markets so far? And what are you looking at to indicate whether they are and the degree to which that's changing? It's a great question. And this is an area of ongoing research for us. But I think there are some things that one can say to give you some faith in the idea that this is not yet fully in the price. When we've tried to assess the future and what sort of level of carbon tax one might need to see in order to meet those Paris agreements, the levels that we need to see are just nowhere near what is priced in today. Another way to think about this is the flow of capital. Even though 2020 was a year in which sustainability mattered more in investment than frankly ever before, and we saw a huge increase in the amount of money that was wanting to invest sustainably, we're still, broadly speaking, you know, it's a drop in the ocean. You can get different statistics depending upon what you look at. But the point is, we are not anywhere near where we might get to. And the reason why that really matters is actually, you get a fundamental different conclusion about the impact on asset prices, whether or not you believe it's in the price or not in the price. And to explain this in a bit more detail, there's been a traditional argument that's been out there in the past, which says, it's inevitable that you have to have a lower return for investing sustainably because, all else equal, I prefer this stock a little bit more because it's green or whatever it might be. And as a result, I'm willing to accept a lower return. That's the traditional argument as to why you get a lower return from green stuff. The reason why that fails for us is it's not yet in the price, exactly to your question. Because if it's not yet in the price, it might yet get more expensive still. You know, the point is that there's a shift in preferences as more and more people care and as this features more and more in investment thinking. So it is crucial to understanding the investment opportunity. And there's a bunch of ways in which you can kind of assess today that we're not yet there. Well, it sounds like that's a lot of specificity, a lot of thoughts as to how sustainability might reshape markets in the future. So thanks so much for joining us today, Vivek. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you so much. This wraps up our mini-series on our global outlook for the year ahead. Our next mini-series will focus on megatrends, the long-term structural forces shaping our future. We'll talk about technological breakthroughs like electric vehicles, cloud, 5G, the future of cities, and how fighting COVID-19 will impact medical advancements for years to come. We'll see you next time. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N, 2DL, telephone plus 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 
1-800-273-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.